0: Dr. R. J. Rushduni, R. R. 130 A. J. 65, the Law of Divorce, Seventh Commandment, Deuteronomy, Doy 24, verses 1-4. Deuteronomy 24: 1 through 4, and Matthew 19: 9, and our subject. The Biblical Law of Divorce. Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4, and Matthew 19, 9. When a man hath taken a wife and married her, and it come to pass that she find no favor in his eyes, because he hath found some in- uncleanness in her, Then let him write her a bill of divorcement, and give it in her hand, and send her out of the house. And when she is departed out of his house, she may go and be another man's wife. And if the latter husband hate her, and write her a bill of divorcement, and give it in her hand, and sendeth her out of his house, or if the latter husband die which took her to be his wife, her former husband which sent her away may not take her again to be his wife. After that she is defiled. For that is abomination before the Lord, and thou shalt not cause the land of sin which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance. Matthew 19, 9. And I say unto you, whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another committeth adultery and whoso marrieth her which is put away doth commit adultery marriage is the voluntary union of two persons a man and a woman in holy wedlock mutual consent is required or else it is slavery, or race. Calvin and Luther both stress this fact of the voluntary union which has always been an aspect even of arranged marriages except in minor isolated cases. With royalty usually the king commanded or passed on every marriage in the royal family. Union involves Mutual consent, dissolution, or divorce does not. As we analyze the biblical laws of divorce, we find that this is one of the most debated and hotly contested areas in all of Scripture. The extent of variation in the interpretation of the law is incredible. For example, the major school of rabbis at the time of our Lord interpreted the Deuteronomic passage which we read as meaning that anything in a woman that displeased a man was ground for divorce. And they interpreted if she find no favor in his eyes to mean that if she oversaw his food, or served it to him so hot that he burned his mouth when he tasted it, or if he saw a better-looking woman and decided he wanted her, these were all, according to the rabbis, grounds for divorce because he had found no favor in his eyes for those reasons. So that you had the rabbis at the time of our Lord and for some time thereafter interpreting this with the utmost laxity possible, making it really meaningless so that any reason that a man imagined was ground for divorce. On the other hand, in spite of this passage and the passage in St. Matthew, which was read, there are many churches that permit no divorce whatsoever. Others that limit it only to adultery, as the only valid ground, and some that say adultery and desertion. What is the reality? What does the law as a whole have to say to us? First of all, we forget that one of the most common forms of divorce in the Bible and in all of history has been divorce by death, by execution. We're not used to thinking of divorce in such terms. But consider this. In the Old Testament, if a man were guilty of adultery or a woman, they were executed. And we saw last week as we studied the New Testament teaching that adultery is, in terms of New Testament law, still a crime that calls for death. Now, it does not exist and therefore special provisions were made for those social orders wherein no such offense incurred the death penalty as a matter of fact this is how the penitential system developed in the roman empire law and order was at a minimum it was a Society going down the drain. And as a result, the church had a continual problem. Here were adulterers and sometimes murderers whom the law was not punishing. How were they going to deal with that? For other crimes that the scripture spoke of, there was restitution required. And the restitution here was the death penalty, but the church had no power to enforce the death penalty. Therefore, what was the church to do? Just tell them, as long as you say you are sorry and you repent, come back in? No. That was to make a or murder a lesser crime than, say, the theft of $10, where restitution was required, the return of the $10 plus another 10 And so they set up certain requirements, penances to do which would demonstrate the sincerity of the repentant person. Sometimes for seven years they would be barred from communion. And during that time they would be required to do a number of menial services. These were not works to work out their sin, but measures to require restitution and to demonstrate their repentance that they were truly sorry and were humbling themselves before God. Unfortunately, when Protestants think of the penitential system, they think of the later medieval abuses, which were fearful. But in its origin, it was the Church's way of dealing with crimes that society no longer paid any attention to, and which they felt somehow had to be penalized. Now, to return to the matter of divorce by death, the law required it for adultery, as we saw last week, so that if a man or a woman committed adultery, the spouse gained a divorce by death. Let us examine, therefore, in summary fashion, the laws whereby a woman in Israel might obtain a divorce by death and remarry, the law is calling for the death penalty against the man. To so list these without taking time to give all the references, the biblical references, which can be given, although we've dealt with many of them. One, adultery. Two, rape. Three, incest. Four, homosexuality or sodomy. Five, bestiality. Six, premeditated murder. Seven, smiting father or mother. 8. Death of a woman for miscarriage due to assault and battery. 9. Sacrificing children to Molech. 10. Cursing father and mother. 11. Kidnapping. 12. Being a wizard. 13. Being a false prophet or dreamer. 14. Apostasy. 15. Sacrificing to other gods. 16. Refusing to follow the decision of judges. 17. Blasphemy. 18. Transgressing the covenant. In other words, for all these offenses, a woman gained a divorce by death. On the other hand, a divorce by death was obtainable by men because of the following death penalty cited for women one, unchastity before marriage, two, adultery after marriage, three, prostitution by a priest's daughter, four, bestiality, five, being a witch or a sorceress, six transgressing the covenant, and seven incest. Now, it's obvious that the list for men is more than twice as long. And it is obvious that some of the death penalties for men would also apply to women, as, for example, murder. But many of the crimes that are cited for men, such as rape and Uh, kidnapping, while it's conceivable that a woman would be guilty of those, it's not very likely. Those are primarily masculine offenses. Thus, because the man has a greater position of physical strength as well as authority, he also is capable of incurring the death penalty far more readily than women. And this is in terms of the biblical principle that to whom much is given from him, much shall be required. And to whom men have committed much of him, they will ask the more. Thus, the first and major form of divorce in scripture is divorce by death. The second form of divorce we dealt with some time ago for a breach of the marital law, whereby a woman could gain a divorce from her husband for his failure to provide for her materially or sexually. Then a third kind of divorce, in cases of consanguinity when it appeared that they were within the forbidden degrees of relationship where the death penalty was not required, the marriage had to be terminated. And also for mixed marriages. Mixed marriages were very clearly banned. A divorce was required. If someone married an unbeliever, that was an invalid marriage. And of course, we have the dramatic case cited in Nehemiah where very rigorously all such mixed marriages were terminated. Then we have the fourth type of divorce cited in Deuteronomy 24 verses 1 through 4 the bill of divorce. This is cited very often in the Old Testament. In fact God declares that he uses this type of bill of divorce because Israel hath not found favor in his eyes. And therefore, he says through the prophet Jeremiah, for example, in Jeremiah 3.8 and in Isaiah 50, verse 1, as well as in other passages, God declares that he is divorcing Israel, casting it aside because of the violation of the law of marriage in terms of Deuteronomy 24.1. Now, when we analyze these passages in Jeremiah and Isaiah, we find what it means in terms of Deuteronomy 24.1. What does it mean when she hath now found favor or grace in his eyes? Because he hath found some uncleanness or nakedness of a thing in his eyes. What is the meaning of that expression? First of all, favor or grace. This means that there is a faithlessness with respect to the covenant. This is the meaning. The covenant of God as a result it does not have a purely personal reference it does not refer to how he feels but if in terms of the covenant of god she be found wanting if although outwardly a believer she is in her heart proven to be apostate and rebellious against god moreover the term some uncleanness or nakedness of a thing in her refers to a variety of things. As we analyze the word and as it is used elsewhere in scripture, it is used for a shameful exposure of the body, that is, lascivious, promiscuous conduct, falling short of adultery. It is also used for perversion. If she is involved in any kind of perversion, thus it means that grounds for divorce constitute lasciviousness and also perversion. Then again, we find the word used for rebelliousness against the godly authority of the husband, not disagreement not disagreement in the Lord whereby she attempts to correct her husband in the faith but a radical rebellion against the very principle of his authority against the idea that God has given any authority to man now this expression some uncleanness of a thing or a nakedness of a thing is precisely the word in Greek which we find translated as fornication, forneia. Thus, the meaning of fornication, when we trace every instance of the use of forneia in the New Testament, means, again, perversion in a woman of some sort, lasciviousness, rebelliousness, and a variety of related meanings. Accordingly, when we read Matthew 19, 9, it is important for us to note exactly what it says. And I say unto you, whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committed adultery, that is, with his second wife. In other words, the word used here is fornication. And yet the ironic fact is that when you read many commentaries and the declarations of churches that limit divorce to adultery, they insist on saying that, well, it says fornication, but it means adultery. Now, this is a strange statement, because Scripture is so very literal. Remember, our Lord placed so much importance on the very literal reading of the tense of a birth that he rested the doctrine of immortality, of life beyond the grave on this, so that he told the Pharisees, God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Therefore, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are alive with the Lord today because God is not the God of the dead but of the living. Again, St. Paul rested an entire prophecy in its interpretation on the singular of seed to make it clear that the seed of the woman spoken of in scripture was Jesus Christ, not Israel because he says it is not of seed as to many, to an entire people, but to one. Therefore, if our Lord here meant adultery, he would have said adultery. But he meant fornication, and therefore he said fornication. Now, fornication has come to mean premarital sex almost exclusively in modern English, but this is not its meaning in the Greek nor the meaning of uncleanness or nakedness of a thing in the Hebrew. Now, since every act of extramarital sex by a husband or a wife with a person of the opposite sex is adultery, even though it might be also perversion or it might also be incest, it is still adultery. To use the word other than adultery means something else than merely sexual offenses. It refers to this fact of lasciviousness and rebelliousness and unbelief. Now the point then sometimes is raised with First Corinthians. Seven. is this another law is the new ground introduced here of desertion because in this case the question is raised by the Corinthians as to divorce they write to Paul and their question is we have many in our congregation who are married to unbelievers and Saint Paul says in the 10th verse and unto the married I command yet not I but the Lord let not the husband nor the wife depart from her husband but then if she depart let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband and let not the husband put away his wife then he goes on to say in the 14th verse for the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband else were your children unclean but now are they holy but if the unbelieving depart let him depart a brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases but God has called us to peace now what's the meaning of this has St. Paul changed the Old Testament law with regard to mixed marriages? Are mixed marriages now permissible? And the answer is no. But St. Paul is not dealing here with a case or cases of Christians who have married an unbeliever. It's quite different. Had it been a case of an unbeliever being married to A believer, his principle, which he also affirms, be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, would have been invoked. He would have said this is not a valid marriage. But this is not what he said. In this case, a couple were married, or many couples in the Corinthian church. They were both unbelievers. Then what happened? One of them became a convert. And so they wrote to St. Paul, and they said, what shall we do under the circumstances? Here is a wife, or here is a husband, who is now Christian, and their mate is an unbeliever. Should we, in terms of the Old Testament law, declare that this is an invalid marriage and permit them to get a divorce? And St. Paul said, no. This is different from a believer marrying an unbeliever. They were validly married together as unbelievers, both of them. Now one is converted. If the believer leaves in such a case, divorce is not permissible. Twelfth verse. But even the unbelieving partner is made a part of the covenant of God and the children are holy in the covenant unto God in such a marriage. And as long as the unbelieving partner makes no trouble, does not in effect declare war against his or her partner's faith, it is a valid marriage. But if the unbelieving departs, if the unbeliever breaks up the marriage, then let it go, let it be broken up. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God hath called us to peace. Thus St. Paul here does not change the Old Testament law with respect to mixed marriages. He reaffirms it, be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, but he says that let every man abide in the same calling wherein he was called in the 20th verse. In other words, Christians are called unto peace. We are not to be revolutionists. If the marriage is broken up in such a case, then it is up to the unbeliever to break it. The believer is to try peacefully to maintain peace. The marriage, insofar as it's possible. Thus, as we analyze these passages, we find the New Testament clearly maintains the Old Testament law. There is no change. There has been a misreading of the Old Testament law by the Pharisees and Sadducees for untold ages. There has been a misinterpretation of the New Testament law but it is one word, one scripture. And the old and the new are at one here. And it was precisely because the Old Testament law was still fully enforced with regard to divorce that the Corinthians wrote and said, should we terminate mixed marriages? And St. Paul, fully in conformity with The whole of scripture said no, not, for it is a case of conversion rather than a believer going out to make such a marriage. In such a marriage, they either demonstrate their unbelief or the marriage is not valid. Thus, scripture again demonstrates itself to be one word. And the essence of the law of divorce has reference not to man, but to God. And this is, of course, the point at which so much interpretation has gone astray. If she find favor in his eyes, find grace, in other words, to put it into the New Testament language. Because favor is the same in the Hebrew as grace is in the Greek and in the New Testament. In other words, it has reference to the covenant of God not to how the man and the woman suit each other, so that it is never what we want in marriage that constitutes the grounds of divorce, but what God in his sovereign word declares. The covenant, therefore, is primary, and uncleanness of a thing and fornication, as well as the desertion of First Corinthians, all have reference to the covenant of faith and the responsibility of man and woman alike to God in terms of his calling. Scripture at all points is God-centered. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we give thanks unto thee for thy work. Make us ever mindful, our Father. To seek in all things first thy kingdom, thy will, thy law work, that we might indeed inherit thy kingdom and be heirs of thy grace. We thank thee, our Father, that thou hast called us to be thy people and hast made us heirs of thy kingdom and hast given us the desire to know thy word and to praise thee as we ought through obedience to thy word. Fill our hearts ever with joy in thy holy calling and make us ever strong in thy word and by thy grace. In Jesus' name, Amen. Are there any questions now, first of all, with respect to our lesson? Yes. No, at this point, the the Catholic Church and the various other churches, and there are a number of them, that take the stand of no divorce are definitely not in terms of Scripture. At this point, they're trying to be holier than God, which I believe is a fearful offense. Now, their point is that for these grounds, separation is permissible. But this is not in terms of Scripture, because Scripture clearly permits remarriage. Now, the only place where it says there is separation is when the believer, as in the twelfth verse of the first, uh, seventh chapter of first Corinthians, if they leave without any real ground, if she be pleased to de- dwell with, uh, no, the, uh, let me see which verse was that. Uh, the 11th verse but and if she depart let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband but in the 15th verse uh, if the unbelieving depart let him depart a brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases in other words they're free to remarry yes Yes, annulments do have ground in Scripture where there is a fraud. Uh, I didn't take time to go into that, but Luther and Calvin did comment on this at great length with respect to the Leah-Jacob marriage. Now, uh, you no doubt remember the story. Leah was going to, uh, was the older sister, and Jacob wanted to marry Rachel. And on the wedding night, they slipped in Leah on him. And when he woke up in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And he was a pretty sick bridegroom. Well, as Luther and Calvin said, this was not a valid marriage. And, of course, Luther's attitude was, if he woke up in the morning and found Leah instead of Rachel, he said, I would have booted her out. Luther was always given to rather forceful language. Now, of course, uh, poor Jacob couldn't do this. He was in enemy territory, as it were. And his father-in-law controlled the course, controlled everything, and uh, he had to make the best of it. About all he could have done was to run for his life in this situation, and he wanted Rachel, so he didn't feel like running. But the marriage was consummated it was still not a valid marriage because there was fraud and in terms of this most states did have in fact I I would guess perhaps all of them the provision of annulment if there were non-consummation or fraud in a marriage Uh, No, because if you stayed beyond a certain point when the fraud became known to you, whatever the fraud was, then you were condoning it so that you lost whatever grounds. Just as uh, if a husband commits adultery, and after the adultery the wife forgives him and resumes relationship, she no longer has the ground of adultery. She has wiped it out as far as the law is concerned. Yes. I can't hear you. Yes. Uh, The scripture in Mark 10, of course, is the text that the Catholic Church takes in isolation from all the rest. Now, how shall we read Mark 10? Because Mark 10, uh, whosoever shall put away his wife and marry another, committeth adultery against her. And if one sh- a woman shall be, shall put away her husband and be married to another, she committeth adultery. Now there is no objection to that verse whatsoever in terms of the. Uh, rest of the law because here it is simply a putting away without ground you see now this was of course the whole point of the pharisaic and the uh, sadducean position that there was the right to put away purely in terms of personal feelings so that phrase, put away, you see, had that significance in the law at that time. So our Lord said, if anyone puts away, it's adultery. They have no right to put away just in terms of their wimp, if she doesn't salt the food properly or oversalt it or if they see a better-looking woman. Now, in the passage in Matthew, what he says is, put away... Saving for fornication. Now, if you limit, uh, if you say there is no divorce in terms of this verse, what are you going to do with the other, you see? And this is, of course, what happens with the position of those who say in terms of this, there is no divorce. Well, then you're throwing out all the other passages in the Old Testament and the New Testament and saying, I'm going to go in terms of just this one verse. And this is the kind of thing, of course, that makes uh, nonsense out of Scripture, because you're trying to oppose Scripture against Scripture rather than saying, "All right, here are these Scriptures. What does one say and what does the other? And they obviously are not in conflict." Does that help explain it? Yes. And in English, this is Yes, the question is, in case some of you did not hear it, supposing there is a mixed marriage with respect to race, and assuming that both are of the same faith, what is there in Scripture that might be against that? Well, the answer is there is not a law against it, but there is basically a principle that militates against such marriages so that you might say they are just barely legal, but in principle, Scripture is opposed to them because the whole point of marriage is that the wife be a helpmeet to her husband, and the term helpmeet means, in effect, a mirror, an image, One who reflects him spiritually, that is, in terms of faith, in terms of a common background, in terms of a common purpose. Now, marriage between persons of very different races generally doesn't fulfill that requirement, you see, so that... It can be technically a marriage, but it isn't one in which the wife can be a helpmeet. So that, while it can legally qualify, theologically, you could say there are factors which normally, in almost 99 cases out of 100, would militate against. it. Yes. In those cases there was a strong faith, but we would have to say in those cases of Rahab and Ruth, there wasn't, of course, the racial difference because they were similarly Semitic peoples or closely related. The linguistic differences were not even great. They could understand uh, these languages because they were related tongues, so that it would not be an objection. Now. Of course, Scripture raises an objection legally against the marriage to a Moabite. It is not permitted until there are so many generations of faith. However, exceptions were made, we know, from time to time in Scripture in terms of the faith of a person, and Scripture clearly makes an exception to its own law in the case of Ruth. Ruth was a woman of very great faith, and is honored and blessed as a forerunner an ancestress of our Lord yes how you know, be- have what a, to a, to what is the product? And what is the result? Not good. Oh, not good. Yes. Well, there are some evidences with respect to mixed marriages. We have, for example, quite a bit of evidence in American history of what was known as the half-breed, the person who was a product of a marriage of a white settler with an Indian woman. There are some interesting evidences there. Such a person usually had a superior uh, physical ability and strength because he combined the white man's resistance to diseases, which the Indian did not have, with the ability to endure, uh, which the Indian had. The Indian did have and still has, I could go on and tell you stories about the ability of the Indian to take punishment and suffering and his ability to survive. The half-breed usually combined both these uh, aspects very, very powerfully. And it made him a person to be reckoned with and feared. But, he was also an outsider, in a sense, to both cultures. So, if you remember the uh, stories you read of Indian life and lore, how often the half-breed, and this appears, of course, in Mark Twain, Injun Joe, was a rather nasty character, too. Because he didn't belong, he didn't fit into either culture. And, as a result, was distrusted by both. And ended up, in a sense, at war with both. This was the tragic fact. His inheritance made him an outsider to both. This again was true, and it still is true to a degree, in India. Between the, uh, in the marriages between British officers, or not marriages, unions between British officers and Hindu girls. Now, very often, in fact, very commonly, these children were very well cared for. Sometimes their parents would make sure that they got the best of education. They were often shipped to Europe to be educated. But, again, they were a singularly unhappy people. The social conditions there made them outcasts in the Hindu world and they tended to be outcasts in the white man's world so that they were by and large a pathetic lot in that they were neither one nor the other. So that there are sometimes some genetic advantages, there are sometimes genetic disadvantages, but there are generally markedly social disadvantages which tend to warp the... Uh, child's entire life and these uh, social factors are extremely strong so that in countries where you do have this kind of uh, group they do represent a rather bitter and an unhappy group a rebellious group any other questions yes The Orient, there's a great deal of prejudice against such marriages, and in a fair percentage of the uh, marriages of American servicemen, say with Japanese girls, these Japanese girls do come from the lowest strata. Uh, I know of one a very brilliant Christian doctor married to a very fine Japanese girl, he was in Japan after the war in connection with military service and this girl is an unusual girl a Christian uh, one of the most beautiful women uh, Dorothy and I have ever known and of course uh, one of the things she does not do in this country is to associate with any of the other war brides because her attitude is I wouldn't associate with them over there why should I here? nine out of ten of them represent such a lower social level and of course she was an aristocrat there and uh, very few such marriages were contracted and this is the usual thing when there are marriages between races very often it's not the best of either and this is another factor that commonly militates against the success of such marriages, in that uh, it's the lower levels that tend to unite in most cases. Yes. Yes, there is an element, you're very right, there is an element of dishonor to father and mother and of a break with the family, so there are very serious objections to it. However, with many, many peoples, after a time, uh, some of these objections disappear. For example, it is now expected that uh, in a few generations there will be no Japanese Americans in the United States. The amount of uh, intermarriage there is so great, the Japanese are very concerned about it, because for one thing, the third generation and fourth generation Japanese are becoming so Americanized, their tastes are uh, altering, their appearance is changing, and intermarriages are increasing, and they're very quickly being merged into uh, the American population. After one generation of intermarriage, you can no longer detect the Japanese background. So with some of these, especially as they move into Christian churches and circles, it disappears after a while. With some groups, it uh, doesn't. Now, one of the interesting facts here with respect to intermarriage, and our time is just about up and we will conclude in a moment, is this that historically, whenever you have had two peoples close together and one in a position of power and the other in a position of either slavery or inferiority, it takes only a very short time for the two races to merge, no matter how great the hatred between them. Thus, when the Normans took England There was nothing more hateful to the Anglo-Saxon peoples of England than a Norman, And, yes, because they were of comparable ability, in spite of that intense hatred, they did merge, ultimately. But when you find two peoples of very different intellectual and cultural levels close together they can be together generation after generation and the amount of merging is very slight so that there is no disappearing of the one as against the other this is why the negro did not disappear in the south had the slaves been say of another racial group It would not have taken more than a hundred years of slavery for the two groups to have merged. But you had a couple of hundred years of slavery in the South, and the Negro did not disappear. So this is the remarkable fact. As a result, when you hear stories told about how the Negro women were exploited and so on, these stories tend to be exaggerations. As a matter of fact, the truth was usually the other way. It was very difficult to raise children in the South or to rear children in the South because one way of promotion was to capture the interest of a white boy or a white man. Now, this goes counter to the Marxist thesis. But when you study the history of the West, you find that one of the best things that ever happened, incidentally, to... uh, the morality of the upper classes was modern inventions which abolished progressively the need for servants in a home. Because one of the major problems that existed was the seduction of the boys and the men in a household by servant girls. Now, according to the Marxists, it was the other way around. The poor working girl exploited. But for the working girl, it was usually a ticket to support for herself and a child. And it meant a dowry to help her get married to somebody else. So there was a tremendous exploitation and a continual corruption of the upper classes by the presence of a large body of servants, because it used to be in a sizable household there were half a dozen servants. and uh, uh, modern technology has eliminated what was once the continual cause of corruption of the upper classes and the upper middle classes. Well, this is getting off into a bypass. One announcement, those of you who are not on the newsletter list or the calcedon Report list to receive our monthly uh, report or newsletter, Please give me your name and address if you'd like to be on. We are adjourned Authorized by the Calcedon Foundation. Archived by the Mount Olive Tape Library. Digitized by ChristRules.com.